Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Lexi Ellingsworth, who has worked in nonprofit organizations in the media, education, and reproductive rights before becoming a mother. She came to the issue of surrogacy on a parenting forum where she met other concerned women online, and together they launched a grassroots campaign to challenge surrogacy law reform, which is currently being proposed in the UK. Stop Surrogacy Now UK aims to raise awareness around this controversial practice by challenging the erosion of language through media spin and by raising up the voices of women with surrogacy regret. I welcome Lexi Ellingsworth to Savage Minds. One of the issues that comes to my mind when I have to deal with the work I do on human trafficking is this. You will still, no matter how logical you make your argument, that surrogacy is a form of human slavery mixed with human trafficking, there will always be people coming up to say, oh, but what will gay men do? Mm -hmm. Oh, but what will infertile couples do? Or, hey, this is the fault of misogyny because women have been made to sacrifice their lives for their careers. Hence, they're the ones that need this more than anything else. Right. And then point out the obvious class effects of this because it's always the elite classes that are renting out the bodies of women, exploiting the bodies of women. It is never going to be the elite women being exploited. We saw the turnaround in India with the laws being imposed there to make international surrogacy illegal, but not national surrogacy. The thing is, is I've been following this as someone who has most of my families in India. I see very clearly as a member of the minor alphabet soup LGP community that a lot of surrogacy has been pushed by and made not to be seen as a human rights violation because the greater violation is but poor gay men oh but poor infertile couples oh but even poor women who are just upper managers and they've had to wait till they're 55 to have a child can you speak to this kind of ethos that makes the kind of work you do harder because you're not just battling for the human rights of women here and children but you are battling a larger cultural morass of this ideological entrenchment that at the end, what matters is that all parties agree that these women are paid and that that's it. It's a capitalist project par excellence. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what it is, is that I always talk about how I was fed on a diet of mm, women's magazines, sort of like the very cheap and easily available magazines that sometimes had stories about um, surrogacy and how it would be a woman um, being a surrogate mother for her cousin or for her sister or for a really close friend and that this was a very you know socially acceptable thing it was uh, an arrangement between adults it was an act done out of love and kindness and it was a very happy story with a happy ending in these articles and um that was really my view for a long period of time and it was only really when I started to um learn about the law reform proposals in the UK and essentially what was coming uh, to start thinking about it in a different way and so I think it's it's actually quite understandable um for me that people consider surrogacy to be a 
you know an acceptable form of uh, building a family or creating a family and it's interesting when you talk about you know the sort of um ideological position that somebody takes i'm not i'm not sure whether so i think it's born from um people wanting other people to be parents i think generally in society we like babies we like happy families we like it when there's a new baby in the family and obviously people have sympathy for um couples who struggle with infertility in in that list i wouldn't consider um same-sex couples because i don't think it's infertility that they struggle with i think it's obviously the biological process of pregnancy and how you need a man and a woman or an egg and a sperm um depending on the method of which obviously you're getting pregnant so um i think it's it may be ideological but i think it's probably rooted i think it's brought possibly broader than that and i think that when um you have the media perpetuating a narrative that's you know this is a lovely thing this is a kind thing to do um you know look at this woman isn't she generous isn't she brave um look at this poor woman she couldn't have a baby or this poor same-sex male couple you know they couldn't they couldn't conceive obviously and everybody all these adults came together and made this plan and it all worked out so I think that's understandable that that that's why people think it's okay and so yes it is difficult to challenge that what makes your work easier then in the sense of we just highlighted some of the issues about what people don't see but what do people see that convinces them that maybe renting the bodies of women whether they're poor western women or poor women from the global south what turns that opinion around because it's interesting that you note about the women's magazines which have also filtered through a lot of nonsense about gender ideology and about being kind around the needs of poor men and it's like wait a second (laughs) they've sort of put the cart before the horse there because no one seems to consider the use and abuse of these women and their bodies so that it is difficult for to challenge this and sort of idea and explain to people that there's more to it. I think what has been specifically useful in our campaign, or at least, um, you know, the sort of timing and um, what it was uh, sort of internationally speaking. So we had COVID and we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So both um, sort of, you know, incidences and tragedies, they uh, exposed what was happening in Ukraine for the surrogacy industry. There were uh, women giving birth in bomb shelters. There were babies um, being cared for by, you know, sort of nurses or um, they they had something called baby dens, which was one, one person, essentially a babysitter looking after maybe four or five babies at a time. And, you know, there was a hotel that had uh, I think they, I think the numbers in the end reached about 100. Initially, they said there were 50 babies, but at the end, there was about 100. Um, a hotel in Kiev had um, had all these babies in, you know, kind of uh, cots, and they had doctors looking after them, etc. But they didn't have a primary carer, so that was COVID. And then um, Russia invaded just over a year ago, and we had. Um, the images that CNN uh, showed to the world about the babies that were basically being cared for underground. Um, the surrogate mothers who gave birth to them were elsewhere, presumably back with their children if they were um, 
safe and able to do so. And then there were also women who were leaving Ukraine um, to, for safety and then returning to Ukraine to give birth because that's where surrogacy is recognised legally. So there were a lot of stories that came out of that. And that was certainly useful um, for those who are against surrogacy because it does expose more um, the sort of dirty and raw truth, if you like. And that actually, when you look at commercial surrogacy, that's what you're looking at. Obviously, in the UK, we have an altruistic model, or at least that's what's, what it's called. And um, people who are on the pro-surrogacy or lobbyist side would say that the Ukraine is nothing like the UK. And um, we can't compare the two and that uh, what we have is safe and ethical. Um, I would obviously question whether it's ethical to take a baby from their mother at birth when you talk about taking a baby from a mother at birth you will have a lot of people on the left saying wait a second what if that woman really is a volunteer she's not being coerced no one has a gun to her head why can't women volunteer this and as i'm sure you know this falls very parallel to a lot of the arguments made about the in air quotes sex work industry that women are just doing this voluntarily. And what is that quote by Julie Bindel about how if a woman needs to eat and has to have a dick in her mouth to do so, that's not very voluntary. So uh, we're talking about a class of women who are always the surrogates. I'm sure on the voluntary surrogate market, there will be women who are not poor. But overwhelmingly, it seems to me from all the studies I've read on this, all the interviews with experts in the field, that this is in fact a market that goes after women of a certain socioeconomic class. Absolutely. And I mean, essentially, it's creating a breeder class, which is sort of some of the language that we've heard um, from women like uh, Jennifer Lal, who's been working on this for a long time. And it's still relevant. What uh, Julie Bindle has said is that the inside of a woman's body is not a workplace. So that applies to prostitution and also surrogacy. If we're considering it possible for a woman to have um, body autonomy, which of course she has, then Um, we don't like to consider where that line is drawn and say, well, actually, you don't have it when these sets of circumstances happen. Um, But we need to be realistic as well that actually, I I refer to it as choice feminism. So you can say sex workers work and women have choice and uh, women have body autonomy and they can do what they like with their bodies. And I think you have to look at what choices, what choice means and what choices are available, uh, what choices are available to you if you, are uh you know poor and you know challenged economically you don't have um many options of how you can um get an income and feed your family etc and surrogacy is often a sort of sanitized socially acceptable form of that because obviously you can be at home with your children you could be a stay-at-home mum and pregnant um when somebody says to you, oh, you're having another child and you say, oh, no, it's not mine. It's actually for somebody else. It's met with a lot of comments about how um, generous you are and how brave and how um, giving you are. And so it's obviously not the same as somebody who says, well, actually, I, you know, I, you know, pardon the crude, crude language, but, you know, I suck dick for a living and I do that to 
put food on the table. You know, if you were to say that to somebody at the supermarket or at the post office, they're probably not going to welcome that and say, oh, that's so brave. That's so kind. So whilst the two are, they are comparable in terms of, you know, a woman using her body to make money, but at the same time, they're not socially, they're not comparable, like socially, if you see what I mean. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we see a lot of threads running through the narratives from the pro-gender lobby that also has people caught within the trap of social approbation. All it takes is to know someone who's brave and doing a good job of being brave, despite all other arguments to scientific coherence or democratic processes, of which the surrogate is in fact disenfranchised. Mm. This bravery seems to have an overwhelming force in the gender lobby, in the surrogacy lobby, and there are many others, in fact. We sat during COVID. I see it today. All I have to do is walk out of my house and I'll see people with masks on, even though we have data to show this is nonsense. It's the purity posturing of goodness. It's that desire that people have to want to be seen as helpful. So, oh my God, you're doing that for your friend. That is so generous of you. So that There's a certain pass that the altruistic surrogates get when getting a pass from the governments that otherwise would say no, even the social disapproval, even from women who, like you, would say, well, surrogacy is not good, but if you agree to it, that's okay. And there seems to be this kind of double barrel where if you're paid for it, that's bad because capitalism, baby shouldn't be bought, organs shouldn't be bought. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, that's where if we were to talk about it in very plain terms, I mean, we can get into sort of, you know, what altruistic means if it's expenses only and all that kind of stuff, because I have some, some things to say about that. But if you're saying, um, if we say socially we are, we totally accept that a woman can do what she wants with her body. Can Do we also say she can do what she likes with her children and if she wants to sell them, she can? And then would we say, well, you know, you can't sell them if they're five years old or two years old, but you can sell them if they're brand new, you know, fresh out of the womb. <laughs> They like where do we where do you draw the line? And I I would say obviously no, you can't do that. And um, mm-hmm. you you know we have commercial surrogacy in various parts of the world, including Ukraine and the US, obviously. But it's sort of like we shouldn't have um, pregnancy as a service and a baby as a product. And if we say that we do and we can have that, and that's morally and socially acceptable, um, then I really don't know where the line could be drawn after that. I think there probably wouldn't be a line or it'd be so far in the distance on the horizon, we we couldn't see it. So um, there's a lot of, you know, real ethical questions around what we accept as a society, which is why the law reform is really important, because obviously the law reform law of the land applied to the people who live there. And I think we are all stakeholders in this. I mean, that was a real big part of um, why we actually formed the campaign in the first place. Because um, we felt, I mean, I found out through a freedom of information request that there were no women's groups um, and, uh, you know, that it was a really strong influence um, of pro-surrogacy lobby groups, including agencies, uh, lawyers, you know, ultimately people who benefit, um, influencing the 
the public cons the, the the process that happened before the public consultation and it was when the public consultation launched that I found out a lot about this and myself and my co-founder um you know we met and we decided to do some some kind of research and reading and ultimately formed a campaign together um but to go back to uh briefly what you were talking about as um sort of altruistic surrogacy and having that as something that we consider to be okay we've actually got a blog on our website and it compares two studies so a recent study um done by jennifer lyle and others and um that was published goodness i can't remember but i compared it to a, a study that was done i think it was around 1997 and the 1997 one was uh, in the UK and it was altruistic surrogacy and um, the one that Jennifer Lyle did that was far more recent, um, obviously decades in between, um, was looking at commercial surrogacy. And actually there are themes uh, between them and women who did what they would call altruistic surrogacy actually um, were doing it for money Um as the bare bones you know so it was even though they you know you might say I want to help I can help I can use my body in this way um it's really convenient for me I can stay home and look after my children or I can do this while I'm working and you know I'm not earning that much money from it a lot of the comments that came through from the interviews were from women who were doing this to they wanted to they wanted some kind of um, acknowledgement, some kind of like, I've done something special. Like if I, uh, I will be recognized for this, but a lot of it was also to do with money. So I don't think the altruistic system, so-called altruistic as it's called, actually applies in the UK. I think that it might do in some circumstances, but I don't think it applies to all. And we label it all as altruistic. When you say money, are you talking about the fact that some women might do it to have uh, expenses paid or in the US, let's just say maybe to have health insurance bought for them? Yes. Is that what you mean? And to have maybe a kind of sabbatical from their regular life? Quite possibly. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. So there's a woman who uh, is called Kim and she is called the Travelling Surrogate on her social media profile. And uh, she's a single woman, although she's she's in a relationship, but they're not married. And um, she had a baby for somebody else and took uh, maternity leave from her job, which in the UK is very generous compared to the US. And um, you can have, I think, 10 months paid. And then usually it, it depends on your your employment contract but then you have reduced pay so you have statutory maternity leave and you have um your you can you you have a different level for the remaining months of the year so you can you can basically take a year off work and she did this to go traveling so she basically had a baby for somebody else in order to have a sabbatical as you say um you can claim in the uk what they call out-of-pocket expenses but um, there's a sort of quite a large question mark over how much of that is a pregnancy cost and how much of that is sort of a living cost. So, for example, you can include in your out-of-pocket expenses um, agreement or claim with your with the commissioning parents that later get seen by a judge, but they don't really um, look at them in too much detail. But you can claim um, out-of-pocket um, a loss of earnings for a partner if they're looking after you during your pregnancy. You can claim um, a mobile phone contract or a portion of it or a portion of your grocery bills um part of your heating um you know if you want to have a hot bath that's in, that can be attributed to expenses and i really don't know again where the line is drawn over how much of that is 
cost of living and how much of that is cost of a pregnancy. So uh, quite understandably, you know, maternity clothes, um, folic acid, um, parking for attending appointments, you know, actually parking in the UK at a hospital for a hospital appointment is very expensive. So there are different things you think, well, if I have to go to a hospital for a scan and it costs me £10 of parking, um, then, I, you know, you might claim that as if you were claiming for a business expense, right? And then if we're talking about expenses that are, first of all, cost of living, not pregnancy, but then you look at your pregnancy costs how much of that is because you're pregnant like how much more are you eating because you're pregnant how much many more hot baths are you having because you're pregnant and it's sort of a bit of a gray area and there was one um I thought this actually put it in a in an interesting context where there was a BBC it was a short series I think there were sort of three episodes of something it's called The Surrogates and it's on BBC iPlayer still I think you might be able to catch hold of it um but there was a young woman who was having um, a baby for a, a same-sex male couple and um, she referred to the baby as the client. So, you know, basically if she needed something and, um, you know, the, the couple would have to pay for it and it's sort of like a like a business credit card sort of thing, the way, the way she was describing it. And I thought that was quite interesting. So it's sort of like, if you're servicing the baby or are you servicing the couple and the service you're providing is the pregnancy and then again, the end product is the baby. Well, it sounds horribly dehumanizing for all involved, not least of which the child. Um, now, some people might accuse me of being romantic. Well, I'll tell you, until I had my first child in 2007, I was one of those people. I might, <laughs> I would have gotten on quite well with Julie Bindel. I would go to a restaurant in New York, and when they said, where do you want to sit? I'd point to the loud table of children and say, very far away from that. <laughs> I would agree with you. I never wanted kids. I even said I hated them. In fact, I've lived all over the world as an anthropologist and in many occasions when I was with people and you, you, you know, you're, you're sitting down for mint tea in the middle of the Sahara with Bedouins and the, well, you should have a baby. And I had to bite my tongue not to say things that later in, in, in a company of friends at New York or, or not even friends, but you know, people who would say to me, well, maybe you'll want to have a baby. And then I would more forthrightfully say, fuck off. Okay. Um, because I never, wanted to hear from anyone what my body should or could do and I would never even entertain that I was the same I mean I'll just explain I was I was a uh, in my early 20s I went to appointments to see if I could get my tubes tied and you know when we talk about uh, gender clinics and the gender affirmation treatment that very young children get very quickly uh, without much sort of uh, psychological exploration I was told that I had to go to counselling for two years um, before they would consider uh, the, the procedure. And, you know, at that time, I didn't have money to get it done privately or anything else. But um, I was quite busy going out and having fun. I didn't have time to go to sort of therapy appointments and explore this this decision that I was absolutely, absolutely fixed on. I'm obviously really pleased I didn't because I went on to go and have a have a child similar time to you, 2006. So um, there's there's lots of reasons why we can change our minds. And 
if we think about changing your mind, we can explore this within surrogacy as well, right? Because you could, you can change your mind. You can, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of women who change their mind about having a baby in say like the eight month of pregnancy. It's obviously earlier on and it's, it's for good reason. And they should be, you know, abortion is, of, is often overlapped with or connected to surrogacy as well under the body autonomy argument. Um, but when we think about women being able to change our minds, you know, if you're pregnant and you're having this baby for somebody else, how much choice do you have? It is your body and the baby's inside your body and you can terminate that pregnancy. You should be able to terminate that pregnancy for pretty much any reason you like, I think. Um, there's very few reasons why you do it when the pregnancy is, um, you know, sort of halfway through, whatever. But um I think that there's a really interesting question around how much of it is your decision when it the pre, the baby doesn't belong to you, sort of quote unquote, you know, that it isn't your baby. If we have this idea of that baby's inside that woman's body, but it's not her baby, somebody else should be making medical decisions. Somebody else should be making um, decisions around her body as well. I think you you kind of lose the body autonomy argument, I think, at that point in surrogacy. And there's some very strong ideas in various parts of the world, um, including Australia, where, um, say, for example, a woman wanted to have an abortion, she would not be able to because that is not her DNA. So if the genetic material came from somewhere else and it was a donor-conceived child, um, not with her egg, with, you know, a man's sperm, and then forming a child and putting it in her body then the the decision making that she had there's there's a an mp who would argue for that he happens to have had i think he's now expecting the second his second child through surrogacy so you can see where that argument comes from this is also dystopian too because as you mentioned earlier you were saying at what point is it okay that a woman gives her child yeah. away if I were to give my children away seven and ten well they might enjoy that but I would go to yeah. jail <laughs> and who gets to make that choice similar to the gender nonsense there is a dystopianism in the sense of the law has taken over the law has mandated that even though it's a legal lie that men are now women it's it's a complete legal fiction that was written down so the legal fiction is there saying, we know it's a legal fiction, but these are biological men. And we do all these crazy straw routines to get away from just saying, man. Similarly, and tragically, the law has truncated the rights of the woman who is the surrogate from even before she's given birth. So her body has been hijacked from her. She now becomes a vessel for the idealized procreation of this couple, be it a couple who has fertility problems, be it two gay men. I will always underscore the two gay men part because uh, these are my BFFs. I grew up in the gay community. And when I say that, most of my friends were not lesbians. They were gay men. And I have a lot of gay male friends. When I got pregnant with my my child, my first child, they said, oh, well, we would like to have a baby. We were thinking about surrogacy. And this is way back in 2007. And I said, well, if you do that, we will no longer be friends. And I just gave them the rundown wow. as to what they should do, uh, such as adoption. Yes, it's a drag. Yes, it's invasive. Yes, there's a lot of discrimination against gay men. But I have some really lovely friends uh, in now upstate New York, but they adopted their child in Texas many years ago when they were perhaps the first gay couple to adopt a child in Texas. So 
miracles can happen right I mean I think that that's a really the thing about adoption and and the difference between adoption and surrogacy I think is really clear when you said so that you know your friends obviously adopted a child from Texas and they've they've been raising this child and they've formed a family I mean that child would have been put up for adoption would it not would the child not have been having it they may have an open adoption but there would be a reason why that oh, child yes. could not have been raised by a biological mother or biological and genetic parents and it might be for all kinds of reasons but I suspect that there would be a lot the life that the the child has has been made possible by the adoption process is likely to have been better than the one that would have been offered by the biological parents it might be because the child was unwanted it might be because they couldn't um, afford the child there's all kinds of reasons right Um, sometimes a child is not safe with the biological parents there could be many reasons why that's an issue but the adoption process centers the child it considers the needs of the child safety the the well-being and the best possible outcome for the child and in surrogacy it's the adults deciding to do this um obviously for the purposes of having a child at the end but the child's needs are not considered in the same way that they're considered in adoption absolutely and this is why i want to go back to the term i used earlier on i do view surrogacy as human trafficking and i i view it as a form of indentured servitude if money is exchanged but what does that money really mean a kind of slavery indentured servitude stroke child trafficking Mm. are there countries in the world where this is strictly prohibited and expressed in similar terms because one thing that i think is really important about the law is not only to say it's illegal but to say we do not do this because this is a very clear form of human trafficking Absolutely. I mean, there's been statements from the European Parliament on surrogacy. Um, the Ukrainian uh, child ombudsman, this was around the time of COVID. His statement was regarding uh, children not being uh, products and shouldn't be sold. Um, that's linked. We've got links to that on our website as well. And most recently, Italy has prohibited it, but also fines surrogacy. So ultimately, if you were to leave Italy, um, go and get a baby from wherever, come back into the country, you would be fined potentially up to a million, um, a million euros. So it's there are some very there are countries I think Portugal, Poland, uh, France, Spain, many countries ban it completely. And when I'm told, oh, you know, you can't ban surrogacy, it's just something that happens. I think well, countries have banned it. They have banned it. Of course, with any law, like any law, um, you know, if you were to ban drugs or ban opioids or whatever, there would always be some kind of an underground market. And some argue that to negate the likelihood of that underground market being successful and, and being the sort of um, the genuine human trafficking, um, that is why we should have it out in the open and that's why it should be regula- regulated. So you can kind of go around the houses and say, you know, whether you ban it, that then causes, um, that has an, um, a knock-on effect and that's worse or whether you regulate it and then are you regulating human trafficking essentially. And really what it comes down to, and you're, you're quite right about this, it's about the money. And so where we have this altruistic model in the UK, 
it's in all but name commercial surrogacy, if you see what I mean. So the language is really, really important. And that's that's across the board. That's how we talk about it in the media. That's how we talk about it amongst ourselves. That's how we talk about it in the law, how the law defines it. And, um, you know, we've had um, this law reform process going on in the UK for some time now. The um, final report is actually due next week. So I'm very interested and intrigued to, to see what it says. Um, but the position that they took at the beginning was that surrogacy was acceptable and it's not going to be banned so it was really about making it more accessible um more attractive more attractive in the uk so people don't go abroad but more attractive and easy easier to for people to access and um for it to be uh, regulated and one very key part of this and i'll just explain it's um parental rights at birth so that's something that is considered to be a key ask by the Law Commission who have designed the consultation and processing this work and this reform. And that is the same as commercial surrogacy. <laughs> yeah. How did they get to that corner? Because that's exactly what commercial surrogacy does. Well, it was heavy lobbying, heavy lobbying from um, the pro-surrogacy lobbyists. So that would include agencies who say this is what um, commissioning parents and surrogate mothers want. Um, surrogate mother, there's a survey that was done as a study that was heavily relied on by, I consider it to be heavily heavily relied on by the Law Commission, by uh, Dr. Kirsty Halsey. And it was a survey about a third of the respondents were surrogate mothers. And they said that this is what they want because they don't want to have um, responsibilities. So, for, say for example, a baby was born, a surrogate baby was born, and there were medical decisions to be made around the care and treatment of this child for whatever reason. Those decisions should be made by the commissioning parents and not by the surrogate mother. And currently, it's it still kind of works, as in you know the parental um, parental rights remain with the surrogate mother. But of course, if she needs to be have a phone call to say, can we? Uh, treat uh, tongue tie in this child you know she gives permission and you know I, th I think you know to say I'm not going to have any responsibility for this child that I've just given birth to um, and you know I'll, I'll I won't have any rights or responsibilities until uh, from birth then it's really quite an un I'm not sure I could understand that because having given birth um, saying, well, this is now nothing, this, this baby's now nothing to do with me. And the rights and responsibilities are with the people who commissioned the child, who wanted the child to be born, and that they make the decisions. Can we take a step back? Because one thing that's just concerned me about what you've said, and, and you can correct me here, it seems that those who are debating the reform in law have put the cart before the horses, as it were. Because why... Would you have the opinions of surrogates at all if the discussion is around should this be made legal, first of all, right? Shouldn't the question, I mean, was there ever a debate about the morality of what no, this no. is about? Let's so, just start there. Well, because if they're having the surrogates there, they're just having union members. And anyone who's making a living from this will, of course, say, oh, but yes, we need this because it's yeah. ka-ching. It's money. The same thing that I noticed when you mentioned Italy. I'll tell you something. Italy is one of the worst in human traffickings in terms of international adoption. It's a larger piece I'm working on 
right now, right these weeks. And it's, it's huge. So when I look around Italy and I see all these families that have effectively jumped on jets, gone to India or Sri Lanka and come back with children, I have to wonder where the ethical debate ever happened in government, in parliament, around the fact that we're just basically supplanting an industry here. So before we have the voices of all the people that are involved, similar to international adoption, you've got lawyers, right? Mm. You've got social workers, you have psychologists, all these people who have a role to play in rubber stamping that adoption or those parents or the surrogate, right? Mm. Can I ask a question about the international adoption? Is it commercial in Italy? Is it purchased? transactional. Yes, it is, but out of the country, you see, and this happens through the Catholic Church often. So this colonial heritage of the Catholic Church around much of the global south has meant that people can go to X and Y places. Oh, I did undercover work when I was in Haiti. I became a spy working with a Quebec a police officer, uh, we were faking to be, you know, wanting to adopt kids and to traffic them. And so it takes donations, it takes <laughs> certain kinds of agreements that you make to do this under these fake orphanages in Haiti. And there's loads of them everywhere. Because in many countries like Haiti, all it takes to be considered an orphan isn't even two dead parents. It isn't even necessarily one dead parent. Wow. It's just an absent parent and lack of paperwork. And it's a very, I wrote a whole book on this because it's one of my pet issues that I will return to soon because these points of how people were swarming Haiti after the t 2010 earthquake, mm. waiting outside of the police station, waiting for the police to stamp their forms to whisk that child away. This came under the wings of a lot of international NGOs. I was reading up on what you guys do at Stop Surrogacy Now UK, and you talk about the Brazier 1998 report. Yeah. I'm going to read it so that our listeners can go and find it. It's called Surrogacy Review for Health Ministers of Current Arrangements for Payments and Regulation Report of the Review Team. And this was written by Margaret Brazier, mm -hmm. Alistair Campbell, and Susan Gollumbock. Mm -hmm. So you noted that not only was there no consultation with women's rights groups until yeah it was after so after the public consultation closed it was at that point that the law commission had direct contact with women's groups this is this is copy and paste from the gra isn't it i mean it's that whole denton's thing about you know make it um uh, link it to something that's kind of hook your hook your issue to something like uh, gay rights and equal marriage and things like that and it becomes this thing that you can't reject that there's that the public cannot reject so when it was framed the consultation was framed as you know this is a kind of a done deal um surrogacy is fine we've just got to work out how we make it sort of regulate it or make it safer then there's no that like you said the ethics debate when did that happen and i wanted to say it was sort of at the very beginning when the act came into place 1985 and then this 1998 brazier report women aren't consulted it's now how to capitalize on their bodies when I had Lisa Littman on the show, I asked her, couldn't we just say that all adults are also prone to this kind of social contagion, to wanting to be accepted, to wanting to look cool and progressive and good? Because I think a lot of these themes overlap on a lot of these issues, including surrogacy, where people don't want to say, well, you know, I really don't think it's cool that children are commodified. Let's begin with that. 
Well, completely true. And I, I just want to say something about, because um, we were talking about body autonomy and, um, you know, women's right to choose and things like that. And uh, also about how people react if you were to tell them if, you know, a woman was to be a surrogate mother and say this is a, a baby for somebody else. There's something that I am very interested in and um, I refer to it as toxic femininity. And it's how uh, women more so than men are expected to help or give or assist or support and there's something in there in surrogacy for this you know that there's a expectation you know why you know you're not using your egg when you have a period you're not using it you could you could give it to somebody who could use it I mean I'm I'm not menstruating on purpose and deliberately distributing my eggs around the place and you know do you know what I mean it's not it's it's a weird thing that my my body or a woman's body or woman's eggs and her womb and her body can, can you know we obviously make and have babies and it's for this reason that we're a bit more useful if you see what I mean or we can be used like the language again in the media you don't you hear the words oh they used a surrogate so you don't you, they often don't say the word mother right you won't often read the word mother unless it's in relation to the woman who is is procuring the child so it's kind of strange i think and it's like you know a woman can be used or useful and you know again with prostitution her body is used in a way it's useful to men um you know obviously it, surrogacy is useful in particular to to gay men um so it it's kind of obvious at a point where and I I don't know how you can undo that but the toxic femininity comes in where the woman herself feels like this is something that she should do she wants to do it she has easy pregnancies she enjoys being pregnant she can be useful and helpful and generous and there's some undercurrents there around if you're doing it to be popular you're doing it to be interesting or special I mean this is certainly what was mentioned in that in that research that I that I mentioned that we've got a blog about from even 1997 um you know this is a really amazing thing that you can do for somebody and it adds something to your life like it makes you a bit more interesting um and then there's a loneliness thing that was quite clear from one of the examples in and that the BBC the surrogates program that I mentioned you know a woman she basically was an exotic dancer and lost a lot of friends when she became pregnant herself so she wasn't the party girl um went on to have a family and there were some really strong words that I think she said where she she was meeting people who were going to be commissioning parents for the child she was going to have. And she was saying, you know, what can they give me? I know what I can give them, but what can they give me? What are they, you know, if they're wealthy, are we going to be invited to be part of their family, kind of be invited on holidays, be go to really fancy parties? You know, she was talking about it in terms of what can they give me? Um, and that they would never stop being friends with her because she did this amazing thing. Like they couldn't reject you. They couldn't dump you. Um, you have this kind of ongoing friendship, but the friendship is, isn't based on trust, which is what altruistic surrogacy in the UK is meant to be built on. But it's actually based on for this woman in particular, you know, what it's a trade off. Like I can give you this, but what can you give me? So there's some really significant um, underlying motivations around this toxic femininity within surrogacy, I would say. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing 
We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Also within the gender ideology movement, the larger group of those pushing it are women. And this yeah. is something that when I had Leo Sapir on the show, he noticed this from the older generation of the then called sex change generation, which was driven largely by men. And there is something to say about the way that feminism has moved all of us collectively towards a dismantling of our rights, quite paradoxical to what? feminism espoused 40 years ago? Well, to prioritise men, to prioritise men and men's rights. So there's toxic toxic femininity within that group, as you say, like the majority of women promoting this or pushing this or looking to seek to stretch the reach of gender ideology. Like, what's it for? Who's benefiting? Why are they prioritising men? You know, quite often I can hear, you know, tra when they talk about trans people, they talk about trans women. I would just call them men. But if we take that language for a moment, if we say they're trans women, they don't, in a lot of circumstances, in a lot of media, in a lot of discussion around this, it's like trans women are women. And then sometimes you'll hear trans men are men. And then sometimes still you'll hear non-binary is valid or something like that. And actually you hear more about the trans women than ever before. And you hear about it because it's the... <laughs> because of the women's spaces question. So if we're talking about women, women's language, women's spaces, anything like that, it's the men who want to be a part of it. The trans men don't want to be, so they don't really get a mention or they certainly aren't prioritised within the conversation. The, the majority of it will be about trans women. So and they're certainly not they're winning all the sports events. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a paradox. Uh, we have disempowered ourselves through a narrative that on the surface, looked to empower us, but did everything but. It was very clever, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was <laughs> successful. It got so far. It got this far. In my view, in my analyses over the years of what's going on, this is all an end product of late-stage capitalism. When you can convince society that what is in the best interest are these minorities, and let's face it, the trans demographic is a very tiny minority. Gay men far, far greater and far wealthier. Mm -hmm. In fact, gay men have a stronger earning power than even straight men. As a demographic, they don't have the money to hemorrhage out because even though there are gay men doing this and having children, they're not the majority. Mm -hmm. And yet you have so many gay men getting on board with what is nothing other than human trafficking, which doesn't surprise me when I saw that of the groups that were consulting on this was Stonewall. Yeah. Oh my God. So Stonewall is not only into giving young girls double mastectomies, but it's into kidnapping children from women and calling it a day. Have other gay rights groups done this to your knowledge around the planet? Not, not, uh, so in terms of surrogacy, um, I know that there's something called, is it called ACON in Australia? I don't know how involved that has been with um, reform in that country, also in New Zealand. So in New Zealand, um, I'm not sure about gay rights groups, but the the MP that I mentioned is obviously in a, in a same-sex couple and he has uh, another surrogate child on the way. And I think in terms of reform, there's some strong voices coming from, you know, people who have had surrogate-born children and 
whether that be you know from international surrogacy or from domestic surrogacy I don't know um but there's an MP in the UK who has had a surrogate born child just last year and the way that that was positioned in the media was that um she was infertile but she was also 51 so um you know one has expectations around how long your fertility lasts when you are a woman and as you were saying earlier you know is this uh, partly due to women sort of extending their careers and wanting to uh, ascend the ranks you know within their within their field and concentrate on that rather than um you know take a break from maternity leave and have a baby and there are some not necessarily around the toxic femininity but definitely around you know the expectations of your own body and what you can can do in terms of having a family that if you are to leave it um for longer then there are there are risks that you take with that it may not be so certain and I think then you get into the whole thing about well you know women can have careers women can you know have ambition and we shouldn't prevent that but you know it's it's still true it still remains true that it's the women who have the babies and fertility isn't is finite for women not so much for men but in terms of your uh, question about the the influential groups I'm not so familiar with that, obviously, our focus is the UK. I do know a little bit about some countries in terms of the law and the law reform, but haven't sort of gone into depth around who is influencing the reform processes there. But I can tell you that the media narrative is the same. So the world over, and this is, I would say this is for Canada, New Zealand, the UK, um, don't know so much about India, but there's a really... Uh, strong sense of oh this law is outdated it's not fit for a purpose and it's um not in line with modern modern day life or modern family life so i think those three almost like quotes you would find in australian media canadian media and the uk and elsewhere but it's all, almost like this is the framing of how you undo a law and you say oh this isn't this isn't fit for purpose anymore it's too old-fashioned it's out of date we need to modernize we need to be progressive and bring it up to date and of course we had that in ireland we have we've had that with same-sex marriage and that's why it works with um self-id as well so the same applies can you tell our listeners, though, what the law reform is seeking to do in the the commission report is due later this month, next week, I believe. Yeah. Can you tell us what it seeks to do and what seems to be the case as to its outcome? Oftentimes people know what will happen. Yeah. The, I, I mean, I think in terms of the outcome, we don't know. I will reserve judgment until I see the report. Um but in terms of the proposals, it was sort of quite clear what the intention was and it was to make it um, easier and more accessible, more attractive for people in the UK so they, they didn't go abroad, um, with the argument being that they won't exploit women over in Pakistan or Mexico or anywhere like that. They'll just keep it on UK soil. Not to say that that's still not exploitative because obviously we've had austerity, we've had COVID, we've had financial difficulty here in the UK and still continue to have it. Um, so it would no doubt be attractive to women who were, who, you know, women and their families who want to make some extra money, right? Um, but, you know, ultimately it was to make it more available. And there, there is the suggestion that it would be regulated and that would be, there would be a, 
a new arm, so to speak, of um, the HFEA, which is the Human uh, Fertility Embryology Authority. So that's the regulator for fertility clinics and fertility law and things like that. And so there would be an additional area added for, so to regulate surrogacy here. Um, but it's, all, you know, reading the proposals, it's all about loosen, loosening the law and making it more available so for example they would uh, the suggestion was that they would allow for double donations so that is where you have uh, an egg donor a sperm donor and then the surrogate mother um that was previously not allowed and is currently still not allowed because you need to have a genetic relationship with one of the legal parents but the proposals would be undoing that and they said that it would not be permissible for international surrogacy because of the risk of human trafficking but that it would be okay in the UK, in England and Wales and Scotland. So um, I remember when this started to come out on the market, when they would say, well, we're going to do this kind of deal, having the surrogate not carry her own child, right? Uh, and this was looked at as somehow a legal solution to mm -hmm. surrogates. This is quite disgusting, actually. It upsets me to discuss now because this looks all postmodern. A lot of people will say, oh, well, this is so fascinating because it'll be my egg and my husband's sperm. And mm. it looks postmodern, but actually it wasn't designed to do anything other than make less probable that the woman would want to keep the baby in their mind. It's so sick because they thought, well, now she won't want the baby because who would want the baby of someone else? Totally dismantling the nine months that this human has gone through gestating and growing close to another being. This is why I'm very clear about language. So I always use the word mother after surrogate. And if I say, um, I will say genetic mother and biological mother because they can be two different women or they can be the same woman, of course, because you might use your own egg in a surrogacy pregnancy. But um, I'm very clear on this. There is, you know, when you're saying her own child, it is her child. It is her, so a surrogate mother who gives birth to a child who was created for the purposes of giving away is still her child because she is the one who was created that child, you know, leached calcium from her bones. Um, the child has essentially tasted the woman through her diet, um, knows her heartbeat, her voice, etc. Um, there's no separation in my mind. If you are pregnant and you give birth, you are a mother. And then obviously you will have adoption. There could be fostering. There could be other state-sanctioned parenthood of a type, um, which is what surrogacy is. It's state-sanctioned parenthood. And when we talk about egg donation, so for example, if there's the commissioning mother giving her egg for the purposes of creating this surrogacy pregnancy, she is the egg donor. And I'll tell you why. is because if I was to have a child with the egg from another woman and an embryo was to be implanted, etc., we don't give parental rights and responsibilities to the egg donor. Me, as the biological mother who's giving birth, has rights and responsibilities of that child. And fathers don't, because obviously fathers can be absent. So it is the mother who is, you know, you give birth, you don't get off the table and walk out of the hospital, you know, that you have legal responsibilities for that child, which you can sign over should you should you wish to. But there's there's... A, a double standard here um, where we say an egg donor doesn't have rights, even though there's DNA shared, but a commissioning mother will have rights 
because DNA is shared. And do you see what I mean? Like it's no, no, I see. I see. It's one thing, but under surrogacy, it's another. And it's almost like we've got a law set up for that purpose. And like you say, it's for the separation. So in the past, before IVF, you would have, uh, you could only ever have had traditional surrogacy, which was quite rare. I would say, I don't think it was necessarily that popular. Obviously it goes all the way back to the Bible and the rape of slaves, et cetera. And that's, that's not necessarily surrogacy at all, is it? Um, but, uh, when we talk about it in more, um, you know, of what's happening now, actually, um, some women would rather do traditional surrogacy over and above gestational surrogacy, which is where obviously it's another woman's egg, um, because they don't have to go through the IVF process, um, which does all kinds of things to your body. And lots of women do that so that they can have their own child, obviously, and you take that risk. But when you're doing it for another person, you might actually prefer not to go through the IVF and to have the injections and the drugs and things that upset your cycle and do all things to you, um, including the risk of overhypostation. Um, uh, you know, like the the fertility drugs that, you know, there's studies about various links to cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So there can be reasons why women go for the traditional surrogacy route. Um, and, you know, it's quicker. You can do it outside of a, the framework of a, a surrogacy agency, you know, a, a gay male couple or, or a heterosexual couple, they can come around to your house, deliver sperm in a cup. You can then... Um, or not if you were to go another route but you can obviously then do it at home in the comfort of your own home um you can do it on a regular basis and without the costs involved so traditional surrogacy i think is actually becoming more popular and again it's unregulated because no one can really stop you from doing what you want in your own home um and then you have a whole another situation to do with you know when you have a genetic relationship with that child as well as a biological one and then what rights and you know it's messy commercial surrogacy is still illegal in the uk then it is in everything but name i would say when we're looking at reform proposals yeah but currently currently no and the proposals would say you know the people the people looking to do this would say no this isn't the commercial surrogacy um i would seek to disagree well, in response to the wave of adoption scandals around the world involving children from the global south, many countries took steps to make international adoption illegal. Again, in India, you cannot adopt a child unless you're Indian. You simply can't, which I think was a good move to avoid larger problems of human trafficking, not that there aren't already problems with domestic adoption. Are we seeing changes on the horizon that might indicate a shift in thinking around this issue? Because... I get quite depressed when I see often famous people in the news. It was uh, Priyanka Chopra recently who had a child with her singing husband. The way that their children are announced, the surrogate's never in the picture. She's not even mentioned sometimes. They had a child. By a surrogacy. Yeah. I saw her yesterday. She was on the beach in Malibu. How could she have a child? She was like a toothpick. But it's like um, the language again, they say via surrogacy. So it's always like they had a child via surrogacy. So that's the process by which, but like, where was she? He was, where did the baby come from? It's like a stork delivered the baby. You know, it's like this mythical, uh, she's this, you know, she, like you say, she, the surrogate mother is either not mentioned or if she gets a mention, she's not named. And if um, she gets a mention, it's always as a, you know, we thank our surrogate, not surrogate mother. And there's a very subtle but clever um use of language to 
to manipulate the narrative around this. We've done a blog recently about celebrity uh, surrogacy and there's um, some, uh, you know, just so many stories to pick from, so many examples. But I think there's, I, I refer to it as social surrogacy because you're doing it for social reasons. So obviously you might be doing it for infertility. You might be doing it as a same sex couple, which sometimes is called situational surrogacy. Um, or uh, what's the other? Yeah, so, so social surrogacy is ultimately as a celebrity with a, you're, you rely on your looks, you need your body in a certain condition, you might be doing a movie, you might be doing a tour. Um, there could be all kinds of reasons why that is your priority. And I believe with um, uh, Priya Chopra and uh, Nick Jonas, they said that they didn't have the time to conceive. So I wonder what happens when the baby is born and then you don't have time. I mean, if you don't have time to that's the easy part (laughs) i don't know how much time you might have in your schedule in your busy schedule to i don't know change a nappy or feed your child (laughs) Uh, they're quite time consuming children you'll find they do take a lot of your time sorry for laughing it's just the way you put it it's so crazy but it was funny i mean you know um rebel wilson i think she had two uh, i mean the way that she referred to it recently was uh one surrogate mother i think miscarried and like no time or attention was given to that woman experiencing a, a loss, a baby loss, you know, and having that, you know, she had the medical process. She might have had uh, a DNC to, to sort of clear um, a fetal product and having the response, just having that response was, it was so dehumanizing and, and, and robotic almost. It was quite astonishing. And this happens all the time all the time yeah there was more media attention paid to rebel wilson's weight loss than her surrogate's child loss i mean this is grotesque i'm sorry andy cohen another anderson cooper another priyanka chopra and nick jonas i did not see that they didn't have time to conceive that's like the fun part so i i I think it might be possible that she did experience fertility issues there have been various things in the press about that um and it, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't say that because it's quite common. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to co- comment about particular celebrities because it's, you know, they'll they might hear this and and have a launch a legal case. I don't know. But it's sort of a question about if you if you don't want to be so if you want a child and you don't want to be pregnant because it's too inconvenient um, or maybe you've experienced miscarriage and you don't want to, or you've had risks. I mean, Kim Kardashian, you know, now I am talking about individuals, but Kim Kardashian said that, you know, she wasn't, it was too risky for her to have a pregnancy. And the same was said of Chloe. Um, and I'm not so sure I'm convinced. I mean, I think there definitely are things, of course, but how do you know for sure? Because they're celebrities and they can say what they like and we all have to go along and believe it. I mean, Chloe had a child previously, like they both had children before and might want more children but I mean so do lots of people so do lots of people have secondary infertility and they just stop at one or maybe their age or their circumstances doesn't allow it and they just stop at one well even if it is a risk why on earth would you say that in the next breath say but I'll give the risk to that woman over there who will remain faceless nameless because uh, I mean this is the thing how and then you are saying that there's a breeder class you're saying that it's okay for a certain group of women to bear this risk and bear the burden of pregnancy and to do it for me because I'm above them and I'm, I'm not going to risk my 
my body, my health, my life for this, but I want her to do it. I want her to do it for me and I'll pay her or I'll pay her expenses. Yes, all seems to be forgiven with capitalism. Yeah, and she will say, and this woman might say, I want to do it. I like doing it. I, I, I want to be pregnant. I like being pregnant. It's no problem for me. And she might have had really easy pregnancies. There's no doubt that, you know, people can have a really, you know, pregnancies like it's a straight it's a relatively straightforward process, but ultimately there's lots of risk apportioned to it. But in this, in a surrogacy pregnancy, she might have three kids. She might have had a good, good, easy pregnancies and, and easy labors as well. And her, you know, fourth and final pregnancy might be so much of a strain on her body. And she, you know, could, could have all kinds of, you know, she could risk her life and leave her children behind. There are surrogate mothers who have died. So, you know, it really is a question of whether we consider women to be a breeder class and and that's okay because they say it's okay and because they want to, in the same way that we have the happy hooker argument that Julie Bindle would would say, um, you know, that there are women who like doing it, so why don't we let them? But no babies are born. I mean, generally speaking, no babies are born. Obviously, there is the risk of pregnancy and prostitution as well. But, um, you know, I would imagine that there's a high level of abortion as well. And, you know, where you are saying they they want to do it, they're happy to do it for surrogacy. The very purpose of it is to have a baby at the end. Whereas prostitutes who are happy, supposedly happy doing this. And this is, you know, it's not something you dream of as a little girl when you're growing up. But if you end up there, then the purpose is not to get pregnant. It's very much the opposite of that. You say that oftentimes surrogacy is compared to, in fact, prostitution, abortion and organ donation. Mm -hmm. Could you discuss where those comparisons fail? I think when people don't think about it. So basically, adoption is not the same. As I've explained, the adoption centers the child. uh, Surrogacy doesn't. It centers the adults. Uh, Prostitution you know, like I've just said, the baby isn't born. That's not the purpose. And um, so there's, you know, men's rights, men are being prioritized in prostitution. Um, men can also be prioritized as part of surrogacy, but, you know, they're, they're not, they're not comparable. The only place they're comparable, I suppose, is where a woman's body is being used and it's for the purposes of a transaction. Organ donation, people will say, well, you know, we use our bodies in various ways. I mean, people will say we use our bodies to for work, you know, all the time. It's like, well, I work in an office. I don't have I don't have my body as a workplace. I you I use my body in an effective way that I'm comfortable with. I don't feel like I'm being raped or penetrated or taken advantage of by my employer because I'm offering a skill that I have experience in. And that's a choice that I've made in my life as well as to what route I take with my career. So that's a bit of a weird one. Um, In terms of organ donation, say, well, look, I can give a lung or I can give a liver or whatever. Sorry, a kidney um, and then stay alive. And it's just something I can do to help somebody and that, you know, this person needs it and I can be that person to help. But, you know, uh, a kidney isn't a it's a living organism, but it's not an autonomous human being. It's not a you know, you can't compare a lung to a a, a baby. You know, there's, there's an organ and then there's a human being. So that I find a strange comparison as well. And then what was your final one? Adoption, did you say? Uh, sorry, abortion. 
Abortion. Because there are people who will say, well, just as you said earlier, that who decides where the line is, that's the same argument that people against abortion have. They well, will say, well, you're drawing the line at birth. We draw the line at conception. But in abortion, a baby isn't born. In surrogacy, a baby is born. So abortion is the very opposite because a woman is trying not to be a mother when she's having an abortion. She's saying, I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to have the responsibility. I'm not ready. She may have been raped. There could have been all kinds of circumstances under which she doesn't want to have this child. Surrogate mothers are saying, I do want to have a child and I do want to give this baby to somebody else. That's the very purpose of what they're doing. So again, they're not comparable. So I think when people don't think about it, they go, oh, well, it's like this. It's like this. It's the same as adoption. Why can't you have it? You go, well, you haven't thought about it in terms of what you're what I think is happening is, again, like the media narrative coming in and saying, well, look, it's the same in society. It's the same as this. It's the same as that. Why can't we have it? And I think we have to have more critical thinking um, as, a, as a result of or as is clear from the, the gender self-ID debate and gender ideology and then also have it applied to surrogacy and in fact apply it to everything apply critical thinking to every possible question that comes up in your day-to-day life as to who benefits who's it for um you know who's getting money out of it uh, what's the end result who suffers we just need to think more deeply about these subjects in order to understand them and then to be able to ask questions of our lawmakers and our politicians and our parliamentarians and even of each other you know i can i can meet a surrogate mother and ask her hopefully without offending her you know i certainly wouldn't i would maybe frame things in a different way um, than as i have today but if i can have a conversation with them and say why did you do it you know we can explore then the toxic femininity argument we can explore maybe as to what her motivations were was it money was it loneliness was it because she wanted to make friends was it because she wanted to feel special in some way what are these things that motivate these women and for the women who experience surrogacy regret as well you know we can learn from them too but only if we ask questions only if we're allowed to talk about it and uh, then only if that those questions are hosted and explored in our in our common everyday language and in our in our, in society as you've hosted here today you know the conversation we're able to have the conversation Yes, well, <laughs> you and I are on the same side of the aisle on this and quite by accident. What's well, a long story, but my aunt was the Dean of Education at a university in Ahmedabad in India. And through a series of coincidences, I ended up coming to know one of her former workers children who was about my age. And I learned that his wife was a surrogate and she was very sad and had a photo of the baby she gave birth to and said the baby was somewhere in the United States and could I help her find it? And I was oh, like, my oh my God. Now, this is the bottom line for me. Out of all these people wanting to make their families on the bodies and labor of women who are poor, often from the global South, I would say that surrogacy should completely be obliterated because it is a form of slavery and human trafficking, first and foremost. But if you're going to stand by the morals that a lot of people say they have a choice, they can back out until they sign. Let's have a contract that states that these women can have their children back anytime. Mm. And let's see how fast surrogacy disappears. And quite that's the whole thing about consent as well, because consent is only consent if you can withdraw consent. 
So like you say, this woman, she consented and said, okay, yeah, you can have my baby. But because of what happened to her afterwards, maybe she didn't identify that at the time or, you know, she thought, okay, it's hormones, maybe it'll go away. But, you know, she's now grieving or mourning the loss of a child who's still alive um, that she's not able to see or care for or know or raise. And, you know, because she's presumably signed something, then do you get to undo it? Do you get to have a choice? Because when we're talking about choice and consent, then can you change your mind? Are you allowed? Is that is that allowed within the law? You know, you have open adoption. Some people choose that for for very good reason. And what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, oh, I'm sorry. I've lost my train of thought, Julian. It was just, I think, a bit about the toxic femininity again and how how that comes back into it so if we recognize women as human and saying that they have a choice um do they do they have do they get to choose to use their bodies in this way um particularly when there's surrogacy regret as well and that's the other thing I was going to say is that when you were talking about women and human trafficking and whether we're okay with it because women choose this we have to have to we absolutely must think about what a baby would choose if they had a voice so a newborn baby is not going to choose the person who provided the donor gametes to conceive. But, and, you know, a baby doesn't have a voice and we can't ever know. But what we know about the fourth trimester and what we know about the mother-baby dyad, there are reasons why babies stay with their mothers when they're, when they're newborns. And, you know, certainly children who are adopted... Um, if they know they're adopted, that helps them, I think, as they grow um, to understand. But there can be there can be a loss for the baby as well. Uh, I mean, we don't necessarily know so much about it. You can't study it because you can't create a, a comparator group on purpose. You know, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, 20 women give birth and say, well, 10 of them are surrogate mothers. The other 10 are women who want to keep their children. Let's take all of the babies away and see what happens would we take a baby away from their mother at birth to just do that as a scientific study probably not you'd hope not for ethical reasons you're noticing a trend now legally at least within the uk where there is an attempt to hedge the damage done by people going overseas and making it happen back in the uk but at the same time this will necessarily encompass a destabilizing factor of women to have autonomy over their own bodies if they are being pushed even Mm -hmm. socially and I mean what a great woman you are what a brave woman you are to receive benefits as well while they're going through this process and there Mm -hmm. seems to be no counterbalance to that I think there's just a lot of questions that we need to ask and I think when it comes to the law commission and the proposals as we'll as we'll see um you know like I say I sort of suspend my disbelief until I actually see the report but when we come to see what they're final conclusions are which is based on a public consultation so obviously they've had to take all of that into account but we have to be able to ask questions of the people who decide the laws around this sort of thing and if we can't ask questions or you know our conversation is shut down or we're considered bigots or homophobes because of it you know I've I've been called that because you know I don't think we should have this and so that's offensive to gay people 
to gay men. So it's kind of like we have to be able to say there are some problems here. We should be able to talk about it. And the people who've had bad experiences should be able to share their experiences too. It's not a complete whitewash about how lovely and rosy and and amazing surrogacy is. There are some things that go wrong. And then I'm afraid we have to weigh up how far how far we're willing to go. Like, are we are we willing to risk there being a breeder class of women in society? And are we willing to take some of the ethical um, sort of consequences on the chin in order to allow it or not? So really that's why the campaign formed and that's that's why we exist because we want to be able to challenge some of the narrative around this, both within the media and within the law and have a presence where there's not just one voice, there's not just one opinion. We offer a dissenting view, which we're willing to talk about and explain and justify and debate with anyone who agrees or disagrees.